My name is James Grime. I'm 60 years old. I tried to sh share my story in 1991 when I first stopped using drugs and alcohol and nobody would believe me. There was no place for me to go. Finally, in uh, 2018, June 20th, 2018, my little brother calls me up and says, uh, I'm sending you an email. I want you to read this article. I want you to read it really well. And it was an article from NBC Nor uh, 4 in Connecticut about how McCarrick had, they had found credible evidence about it, against him from a 16-year-old altar boy. It was, uh, it was Cardinal uh, Dolan who said there was credible evidence. I uh, probably read that article 20 times. I got down on my knees and I thank God. It has been almost exactly a year since James Grine read that article. We've had a year-long news cycle about abuse and cover-up in the church. We've heard a lot from the bishops, and we've heard a lot from journalists and from commentators. Lots of people have an opinion about how to address this crisis. But how much have we heard from the victims themselves? This week on the program, we talked with two victims of clerical sexual abuse about how their stories have been heard and received in the church. And we talked about their hopes for the future. I'm J.D. Flynn, and you're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. This is an intense episode, but it's also important. So stay with us. My family and I uh, knew Theodore McCarrick through my uncle Werner. They went to uh, Fordham Prep and Fordham University together. McCarrick was part of the Grine inner circle. James says his grandfather basically adopted McCarrick. He paid for all of McCarrick's schooling and seminary. He even bought him his first car and took him on vacations with him. So he was the holy man inside our family. James first remembers meeting McCarrick when he was seven or eight. McCarrick began to abuse James when he was nine years old. James remembers feeling confused after that first instance of abuse. And I went downstairs and I kind of felt good and kind of felt weird that uh, I was being singled out by the holy man. I, maybe I'll, I'm going to be okay. And I told my father about a little bit about it and he goes, uh, "Just he's a, he's a good man, just do anything he wants and you'll be fine. And my father always believed that. After that, McCarrick left for two years to serve in Puerto Rico. He came back to New Jersey when James was 11. And uh, that's when McCarrick started to... Uh, make me go to confession with him. It was uh, then he would abuse me. James told us the dates and circumstances of each instance of abuse. Thanksgiving Day at his grandparents' house, at his sister's wedding. And as James got older, it continued. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. And by the time I'm uh, 14 years of age, I am completely groomed for him. He has been able to manipulate me and my mind and my actions to believe that he is my true savior, my true path to God. And he has me. And he knows it. But no one else does. As I grew up, my spiritual 
values dropped to zero, and my mental abilities to stay focused on many things was drained. Was drained, and I try to.、Uh, what happens to us when you lose physical and mental and spiritual abuse is that you get to a holy, a, a very unholy place, and you try to commit suicide. And so many victims, so many victims. I have met parents. So many victims have committed suicide. I am one of the luckiest ones in the world to not have been successful. God knows I have tried. You can say many things about why a victim is put in a position where they really lose their voice. This is Teresa Pitt Green. She's a survivor of clerical sexual abuse, and she works with abuse survivors. Not only is a personality destroyed by abuse, but also a sense of free will, so that you really become something that, that the world acts upon, and you have no agency. And of course, then to go through life without rediscovering that, a lot of other stuff gets heaped on you. So it's not uncommon to encounter survivors who are actually addicts or. Have gone through like five different marriages, or in a really bad shape. That doesn't make them less believable, but from where I sit, actually makes them more credible. Like James, Teresa was abused by priests who were close to her family, priests who came to her family's home for dinner, or worked closely with her mom at the neighborhood parish. Like James, Teresa's abuse began when she was young and continued into her twenties. These were very, very, very powerful men in my life, in my school, in my town. You don't dare say anything. They tell you what what's happening, which is, in various cases, your fault or something or else, and you believe it. You internalize it, and it doesn't take long to feel like you're protecting your family and your friends and your parents from how terrible you are by not saying anything and being grateful. That the abuser doesn't tell anybody. You become very much, very, very, very much、um, a slave, and it very much, of course, over time, you're not even questioning that anymore. It's become part of you. For four decades, I couldn't go to church. Teresa told us that for many years, having any kind of relationship with the church was extremely difficult. To avoid the shame of what had happened to her and the self-hatred that went along with it. Teresa threw herself first into her degrees and then into her career, but she kept coming back to the church. She told us her father believed education could get anyone out of anything, as long as that education was rooted in Christ. And she told us she found out that was true. Everything she knew pointed back to the truth of the Catholic Church. In order for Teresa to heal, in order for her to begin to truly mend her relationship with Christ in the church. She found out she needed to share her story, but at the time the church was not very welcoming to the voices of survivors of abuse. I remember one, one、uh, adoration I went to. I was in such bad shape, and I just—I was certain I'd confirmed I would not kill myself. I'm kneeling there in front of the monstrance, and I'm hearing two women talk about how horrible all these victims are that are coming forward. They're making it up. They're after money. They're after blah blah blah. They probably weren't even abused, and here I am. Now the cool part is Jesus always triumphs, and I can fall. I can just 
pour myself out in front of him and he could let them say that and still care for me and care for them. It took a lot of years, but Teresa has reclaimed her voice and now she shares her story. And today she's dedicated her life to help bring healing to other survivors of abuse through an organization she co-founded called Spirit Fire. Teresa and her organization are also trying to help the church as a whole to heal. They're doing that through relationships. Spirit Fire says it is a partnership with survivor leaders who are cultivating inspired and renewed relationships for all hurt by abuse and all members of the Catholic Church, rejecting cynicism and fostering ever-deepening faith and compassionate connections. The abuse is a, is a wound, not just to a person, but to a family. And it's also in the church, a wound between the child, me, and the priesthood, which is all the priests I meet. It's not to underestimate that the greatest wound is to the survivor, don't get me wrong, but everybody shares that wound. Um, there's plenty of psychological research that points to the way wounds are shared in families. And the church is a family, it's not just an institution. You're looking at the body of Christ if one member of the church is in pain and suffering, then we all are in pain and we are suffering. This is Deacon Bernie Nohadera. He leads the U.S. Bishop's Secretariat of Child and Youth Protection. He's been in that job since 2011. And before that, he did similar work for the Diocese of San Jose in California. We're looking at uh, abuse that has taken place. And, and this abuse has now affected not only the survivor and their family and friends, but the the church family at large, this has taken a, an effect and an impact on the larger community. And so if we're going to be able to heal, if we're going to be able to look towards walking down that path of healing and reconciliation, we need to do that together as a family. And in many cases, it's the survivors who are the ones that are going to show us the way toward that healing. The faith stories of fellow survivors it just like it's it's incredible it's spiritual um, nourishment the church desperately needs. To help with that, Teresa and her team at Spirit Fire have led workshops with clergy and laity, including Deacon Bernie at the Secretariat, to teach them language they can use to talk about abuse and to help them connect with survivors of abuse. I went to one of those workshops a few months ago. It was powerful. And then to really just allow survivors to, in a way, be the one that is dictating the pace, is dictating you know, what they're able to share, what they want to share, allowing them to have that type of, if you will, power, that active role to just make sure they are now being able to, to have that voice and to be able to share what they need to share. Today, a lot of dioceses have someone on staff who's been trained by Spirit Fire or a similar program to talk with and to serve survivors of abuse. Teresa says that in many cases, dialogue between survivors and the church can lead to a renewal of faith for everyone. I do marvel. It's not my intent, but wherever we go into our work, everybody's faith kicks up. It's amazing. And that's why we end up calling each other spirit fire. It's a mystery even to me to realize the impact on our church that's it's amazing and beautiful and beautiful and a, and a lot of hope. I know that everybody's upset. Great. I'm glad you're all waking up to this. Cool. You should be. But man, our, our faith is enough. You know, God does suffice. 
So one by one, we are ready to do it one by one um, to help go back to the priests and the survivors and bring them together in dialogue. Families and the church, priests back into dialogue because both sides heal. At the workshop I went to, I was struck by the power of that dialogue. Survivors were vulnerable and candid. And then, to my seriously great surprise, bishops were just as vulnerable and candid in response. Suddenly, and I know it was just in that one room, but it didn't feel like two sides. It didn't feel like heated protests and flimsy public relations statements. Just at least in that one room, it felt like people who loved Jesus, who had come together to ask him to heal their woundedness. I cried at that seminar. I don't usually do that. Um, this may may challenge a lot of Catholics because they don't even realize how effective and real a relationship with Jesus our sacraments are. There, there's um, a, a disconnect from the life and death aspect. Maybe it's because we're in a society where everybody suffers, everybody goes through terrible things. Um, but it's not quite as life and death as other eras. I don't know. All I know is Catholics in these dialogues come to life too because they realize, wow, God gave life into the middle of this life that the devil really used the priesthood to try to destroy. And in the end, it's by the power and the grace of God that we will end up coming out of this and growing to becoming a healthier and holier church. I firmly believe that. Deacon Bernie hopes the work of the church will eventually become a beacon for the secular world. It's not just a church where abuse is taking place. We have an opportunity to be able to model to the you know, society at large the, the bigger picture, the bigger reality of abuse in general. What the church has to offer to this world right now because of this is so amazing, is so incredible. It's, it's just, there's, there's so much more hope than people know. This is, and, and this is not through the old-fashioned denial. This is through knowing all of that. This is, this is through knowing the darkest of the dark of the dark of it. But I'm telling you, we still have the truth. There's your rock. Hi, this is Perry West. I'm a staff writer at Catholic News Agency. You may not know this about me, but when I'm not writing stories, I'm a musician. If you enjoy listening to CNA Newsroom, you should be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is easy on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Or if you've never heard of any of those, just open whatever podcast app you have on your phone, tap the magnifying glass, and type in CNA Newsroom. Then click the subscribe button. our relationship with the church is great I have no problem not pretending that there's a lot of bad stuff 
I choose to work and support all the great stuff because that's what will make it stronger. But I don't have to pretend that there aren't terrible things that still need to be fixed. The U.S. bishops will get together in Baltimore in just a couple of weeks for their spring assembly. And many Catholics are hoping for and expecting solutions to this abuse crisis. But Teresa said she's patient. And although she has hope, she said she's keeping her expectations realistic. We are not going to know what the bishops do till they get together and do it. I will say that the bishops that I, I work, I'm blessed to work with some bishops who are just inspired in their effort and their, their moral commitment to make this right and to pay whatever price has to for what others did decades ago. For James, it's a different story, at least right now. He said that he's satisfied that McCarrick has been laicized, but he thinks that's just the beginning. And it's really only been one year since James first shared his story, and he told us that the process alone has opened a lot of old wounds. James is still healing, and that will take time. He said he knows a handful of priests and bishops, and even a couple of cardinals who are good. James trusts them. But he said he thinks the church continues to be poisoned by priests and bishops who aren't good. And James has very little hope that that will change soon. What do I expect from them? Nothing. What do I want from them? Everything. Teresa understands that perspective. She knows that sharing these kinds of stories and having them heard is still very new. And she said the chance to share their stories is really important to what will happen next in the church. From the survivor point of view, they're starting to have environments where now they can safely say, wow, I can talk about it this way too. I'm not just limited to being a person in therapy with a story, and I'm not just limited to being my story as one of abuse, but I can now talk about what it's meant to me in my faith, what it's meant to me in my family. And, and it doesn't always have to be good news, but it, but it has a greater, deeper dimension. Teresa remembers what it was like when she first started sharing her story so many years ago. She especially remembers the feeling that she was being villainized and, and she was defined by stereotypes. And now, Teresa says, she thinks that's how some Catholics are talking about priests and bishops and cardinals. I got dehumanized. I became just one more survivor that was after money for the church for decades. By the way, I never sued the church by choice. And I'm watching the bishops now. Every single one of them is the same to the laity. The laity used to think I was gold digger. The laity now thinks every single bishop is terrible. And you know what? That's just dehumanizing. There's no doubt some bishops did some pretty bad things. And guess what? It wouldn't hurt the lady to find out that there's some bishops who've been doing some really awesome things. Still, Teresa said it's been a long road for her, and she knows the church has a lot of work to do. You know, you guys, I'm really glad you're all paying attention now. But from my point of view, it's like, hey, I'm 59. There's a whole lot of years you didn't like me at all. So God bless you. Welcome on board, but hey, everybody's got some stuff to work out here. And I certainly am absolutely certain that our Redeemer is not satisfied with where the bride, his bride is. And I am absolutely certain anyone looking at this situation can see the 
the arm of God's power shaking things up until we get in line with him. And the bishops of all people know that. And the, I that's where my hope lies. And you know what? If they come out, if, if, if terrible things come out in the next five years that we all suffer with and get shake us up, I am firm in hope because I know everything that is evil is already dead, is already vanquished by our Savior. Now, how that works out, I don't know. And it's going to hurt, probably. But I, this, whatever happens in Baltimore, is going to be a lot about the degree to which the, this group is ready to bring the church even closer to the will of God. This episode was reported, co-written, and produced by Kate Fike. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to Teresa Pitgreen, to James Grind, to Deacon Bernie Nohadera, to all those who have shared their stories, to all those who are helping people share their stories, and to all those who are still looking for the courage. We're praying for you. We'll talk to you next week.